Thanks for joining us for yet another episode of our War on the Rocks podcast series. I got uh, I got three interesting guys in here. I got J.M. Berger of Intel Wire. I have Will McCants. He's the director of the U.S. and the Islamic World Program over at the Brookings Institution. Not Institute. Don't get that wrong. They don't like that. Uh, I got Clint Watts at uh, Homeland Security Policy Institute where he's a senior fellow and he's also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia, uh, where we all know Mike Noonan very well. Mike is a War on the Rocks contributor. We'll see if he listens to the blog or the podcast. Let's uh, say something to Mike, everybody. We'll see if he... No? Hi, Mike. Okay. <laughs> really creative. Mike, thanks for funding this podcast tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is where your money's going. Um, so, we're going to talk about a few things all loosely related to intelligence, counterterrorism. Um... I'd actually like to start out with JM. Uh, you've been doing a lot of interesting work on the social media front uh, this this whole year, really. Uh, and uh, you published something really interesting where I, from where I used to work, the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence over in London, um, where you used some sort of interesting, an interesting system to uh, sort of track the levels of extremism that you were seeing online. You want to talk a bit, a little bit about that and the sort of work that you've been doing since? Sure. The uh, you know it's it's really a very uh, rapidly evolving area. So what we've seen over the last two years or so is that the way extremists use media online has really changed from being kind of a top-down enterprise that's controlled by leaders of terrorist groups to a grassroots enterprise where individual extremists are found everywhere. They're, they're getting online and, and tweeting about their daily lives and, and getting on Facebook and posting pictures of their meals. And their cats. Yeah, and their cats and their uh, dogs and just about anything you can imagine. And so... And you sort of have this Twitter bromance going on with uh, the late uh, Omar Hamami, if am I right? Yes, yeah, well there was... Uh, Omar was a... Omar pioneer, was a Shabab American... Was a pioneer in social media use on, uh, on, on the part of Al-Qaeda. He... I believe he was the first guy to live tweet being shot in the neck. Not of our, uh, not all of our listeners will know. Our CT junkies will know who Omar Hamani is. Do you want to give give a little brief background? Really interesting. Shababi American. Yeah, yeah. Shababi American. Alabama. He came from Alabama. Uh, grew up there, and and somehow his life path led him to Somalia. And a process that really is still not totally clear, despite his pretty extensive writings about himself. Um, but it, but his connections online did play a pretty big role in that. He went to Somalia and fought with Al Shabaab and found it not to his liking. Uh, he had complaints. He was not disenchanted with the concept of jihad, but he really uh, didn't like how Al Shabaab was carrying it out. So basically, he started to complain very publicly using social media on YouTube first and then on Twitter. And this got him into a great deal of trouble. And Clint, it's just sorry to just jump in right there. I remember you publishing a paper a couple of years ago on the sort of factional splits. Yeah. Within with Leibovitz. With yeah, Leibovitz. Andrew Leibovitz and I uh, wrote a paper. And that was about this period where he was starting to cause yeah. sort of tension within the organization. Yeah, that, we called it uh, Al Omar Hamami and Shabab's Game of Thrones. So okay. he was getting caught up in the <laughs> factionalization, you know, within Shabab. And uh, it was actually Andrew was like the first person to pick up on it and say, you know, we haven't heard from this guy in a long time. 
and that was like two or three days before we kind of were thinking about writing something and then he posted his first YouTube video which Jam was referring to was that the one where he was shot Jam? no, no. that first oh, one was hop- just uh, he filmed it in the uh, house of a friend and it, he just said Al Shabaab is trying to kill me he didn't give details of why and that he, he was, was on the run yeah and he was pleading for help from from the broader jihadist community right and that sort of was the first public signal uh, that of what had already been going on within Shabab which is sort of factionalization trying to take control and it was right after Shabab had officially aligned with Al-Qaeda which everybody had known they were working with Al-Qaeda to a certain extent but it was a very public you know union between the two and then now you have one of their most famous foreign fighters who's essentially on the run from his own you know terrorist group which is really a huge advantage for the U.S. because this is kind of what we've always tried to stress with these foreign fighter recruits. So he got on Twitter and and began sparring with folks like us and got into these, you know, long and to, to some of us interesting exchanges, to some of us not so much. Do you want to well, say something shake, about that? Will, Will is less excited about it. That guy sucked. <laughs> <laughs> did, he, did he offend you? Or? I just, I, 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 he really got off on interacting with Westerners, um, and I understood why people were talking to him, uh, but it was, it was, it still bothered me, the, the way that he was kind of celebrated by his community and celebrating himself for, you know, talking to people who studied him, um, and I had one interaction with him in particular where he was gloating about I think JM or somebody else having written about him, and, and uh, anyway, it, it ended it ended badly. I, 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 I just didn't. Not as badly as it ended for him, I guess. But no, no, that's true. But I don't know. He was unrepentant. He was unrepentant. I mean, he could he could snap the towel with anyone. He had grown up in America. He knew how to, you know, make jokes and cultural references. But when you pushed him and you asked him, hey, you know. Are you okay with bringing a plane down full of Americans? Yeah, I'm totally okay with that. And and I just found it kind of disgusting. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. Mm-hmm. Here's a fantastic thing mm-hmm. that he complained about on Twitter, which was the unjust imprisonment and killing of innocent you know people who were supposedly fighting for jihad. But in his own bio, there were different times where he talked about taking detainees and just shooting them in the head or killing them. He admits to this. So then when you pin him down, I'd be like, but yeah, so now you're on the run, but you were doing that to other people, right? And we'd be like, well, it was different circumstances. And it was Those like, were coffers, yeah. for sure. Right, right. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I was a big waddy, right? I was the super coffer. Yeah. Yeah, the unbeliever. And I mean, whatever. Hey. I mean, what I thought was interesting, though, I mean, Will's right. He was unrepentant. But over the course of long and sometimes painful exchanges, you could find there were soft spots in, in some of the stuff. You could sort of like work a different angle with him and get a little further. And I, something that I would like to do if, if time permits and I get to the point is sort of like go over, because I saved all these conversations and go over them. The and, private and see, conversations? Private and public. Yeah, because I think he was much less yielding in public for he, obvious reasons. I mean, I got him to yield several times, to, like about him breaking yeah. with Al Qaeda and stuff long before he did it. There was, I mean, you know, I got him to move from terrorism being a necessary tool to being a tool that is 
acceptable but not necessarily obligatory. There were there were things the things that I thought were interesting about this and the reason that I want to write about it is where you could get a little bit of ground with him, you might be able to get a lot more ground with somebody who's not as far down the path. That that you if you know, if he yielded an inch on something, you might be able to... Yeah, but are we as, like, where, as, as non-Muslims the ones to have those sort of theological debates with him? He brought up a lot of non-Islam topics, which... Yeah, one of his big things was taxation. That's one of the main things he complained about, was cot taxation, how the wealth wasn't shared. I mean, that's all... That's very American. And he did a lot of things that were very American. So I can see why, like, in the Muslim community, he started, I think he started to lose a lot of support. In Somalia, you mean? Yeah, yeah. and just kind of globally. And he changed his language, literally the language he was speaking, every time he was trying to win over a new community. So he started in his first post in Arabic, you know, and doing videos in Arabic, trying to reach out to the Arab community. They wanted nothing to do with him. It was like fellow deaf ears. The crowd he got the most attention from is the one he betrayed, Americans. Yeah. He started talking like an American, he started engaging with a bunch of English speakers. And then in his final chapter, he was doing it in Somali language. And back in Arabic. Yeah, yeah and back in Arabic. And he released audios in Arabic that they nobody, ignored nobody him. except me, as far as I know, <laughs> the Arabic that these things existed. The Arabic jihadi community, they just totally ignored that dude. Yeah. Well, he had no theological credibility. He was well, trying the, hard, the, though. The thing, though, is that I, I'm still, I, I'm pretty ambivalent about the primacy of theology in motivating these guys to violence. I think, I don't think that you you win an argument on a theological grounds, and I don't think you push somebody into this on theological grounds. I think that theology bolsters a political or personal kind of grievance. Well, yeah. The theology is an important reinforcer, but you can't fight it on that. On that ground, I think like everything. And that's and he Hamami once, you know, came back at me when one of these arguments is like, well, this is we believe this because it's what the Quran says, and I was like, because God is not an interesting argument. So he went on and he continued with it for a while and and, and tried to defend it from more of a functional in the real world kind of. Everything Omar said on Twitter basically was an admittance to screwing up. Yeah, but I mean if. It, it, he was speaking to his audience. I think, like everything else, it's complicated, uh, especially in that community. If you look at all the tapes put out, they are theological. I mean, you look at all the popular people that are on these jihadi tapes in the West, Al-Laki, Abul Faisal, years ago, before that. They're all sort well, of preachers. Al-Laki and Abul Faisal are extremely political. Yeah, I mean, but they're I mean, also theological credibility. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm that's not what saying, they primarily I are. I mean, I'm not arguing. I've heard it people kind of take the approach that the religion part of it is not really important. And I'm not saying that. But I think that the religion part of it is, it's problematic to try and come at it from that perspective. And I think that there's often a lot of other factors that are that are more uh, things that you can talk about and try and get some, make some progress on. Because I think that, you know, simply being religiously devout or focused even on a Salafi kind of viewpoint doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to strap oh, on a bomb and be suicide bomber. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. It just, it seems like, it seems to me that, you know, even guys like Alaki and, and Faisal give you a lot to work with that, that is not a purely religious argument. Sure. Well, you've scribbled about this a few times. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with JM that 
religion probably isn't always the best entry point, but when you find them, someone like Omar defending uh, a position of Al-Qaeda as a theological and a juristic position that is way outside the Islamic mainstream, it's worth pointing it out because it can kind of yeah. shake them loose a little bit. And I, I did that with him yeah. on, on the question You ate on fatwas, right? Yeah, on, on, on Al-Qaeda's fatwa. It's 1998 fatwa on, on attacking Americans wherever you find them. And I just, there's no defense for it in classical Islamic jurisprudence. But I, I guess my frustration with the coverage of Omar more than Omar was that, you know, it, the media coverage almost cast him as a, you know, as a, in, as a kind of a hapless figure who got up, wound up in something he didn't really understand. And I mean, this, this guy, say what you want about him, he was a smart guy. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was. He, he sought it out repeatedly. He sought it out. Yep. He was unbowed, unrepentant, and he got what he deserved. I mean, that's, that may be a harsh thing to say, but look. He knew exactly who those guys were in Somalia. Hell, he was publishing his own exposés about them. But he would not leave, and he preferred to go out as a purist, the guy who is you know, upholding al-Qaeda's true standard, because that's what he claimed to be upholding against the factionalism of Shabazz. It's funny, just, you saw more sympathy towards him killed by his own than you do see people that our government kills, uh, who you see no sympathy for, mostly. Well, you, know. you know, I mean, Hamami outside of the people who really, really study this stuff. Hamami was a, an accessible figure. He, he, he was the, had an interesting... He was the Kardashians of the Jai world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it's fun to watch. It's a yeah. train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> he's a trainer. You don't know he's why he's famous. You, you don't, don't understand it. He didn't this. even write his own raps. He's a Jai rapper. He's done all this bizarre he's, stuff. He's yeah. got a, he's got he a eats funny Chris way of talking. Donuts. I mean, people, it was funny to me. It was fascinating to me because, I mean, in addition to keeping track of my conversations with him, I also track what everybody else said to him. And people who had no grounding in this in this field were like, just coming out of the woodwork and, uh, you know, there were like half, half the people who come out were like, you know, go die, you scumbag. And the other half were like, come home, come on, I'm so sad for you. And it's like, it was The bizarre. other media interpretation is that he, he was so important you know, to the jihad and al-Qaeda. He's not even the most important American in Shabab. Yeah. And he's also not that important in the Shabab civil war, except as it's chronicler. Other than he, he, he told everybody what was going on, yeah. which was hugely valuable. In English, yeah. He was a convenient tool for the actual people who were fighting that conflict, well, which we, would be Afghani and Robo and... You mentioned earlier stuff you're tracking on social media. Let's. I want to get back into the sort of research that you're trying to do on extremist communities, and and often actually not on um, Islamist extremist communities. You're looking at the sort of uh, right-wing uh, white supremacist movement, from what I understand. Well, one of the things that that bothers me in, in how we approach these topics is that we spend a lot of time on the content of the extremism as if they are different things. So jihadism is different from neo-Nazis. What something that you can kind of see in some of the social media stuff that, that I've been doing, is looking at these communities and measuring their interactions and then seeing what that tells us about how far on the spectrum somebody is. And what it, it seems to me that what the research I've been working on suggests is that these that these dynamics are not 
specific to the content, that there's kind of a, uh, patterns of behavior in violent extremism that are not just exclusive to Al-Qaeda or just exclusive to neo-Nazis, but they're, they're part of the same thing. And, you know, when we talk about you know, getting to this sort of government efforts to try and fight radicalization in this country, and they're, they're all about Muslims, and, and one reason I think I get uh, exercised when, about the religion point is that a lot of discussion of extremism is really like focuses in on the theological arguments, and ultimately I think that, you know, there's a dynamic that, that transcends just any one movement, and that you can kind of see that in this data when you look at how these networks form and how people are distributed in them and, and what kinds of activity people are in, taking part in uh, at different points in the spectrum. You can see commonalities across the different kinds. Well, that's why I, I enjoy, just to nerd out for a minute, the social movement theory perspective, which in one of the uh, these edited volumes about social movement theory, you'd find chapters on the radical lesbian feminist movement, the black power movement, um, the anti-nuclear weapons movement, all in the same book and looking at those same dynamics. And I think that that perspective hasn't informed the debate on uh, current events as much as it should have, probably. Yeah. There's a great, uh, something that I was on my list of projects to do someday is to look at dystopian fiction across different types of extremism and radical beliefs because there's a template for this novel of the dystopian near future in which everything is going to hell and they're really kind of amazingly similar you know across different boundaries al-qaeda is one of the few people who doesn't really have one there was somebody did an internet post a couple of years ago that was like you know one page about the future jam i don't know what the hell you're talking about here. <laughs> i'm talking about like the turner diaries I'm okay, okay. now i got you yeah, yeah, let's start our, our listeners with the turner diaries there we go the turner diaries is like a nightmare near future scenario about how a race war is going to start and white people are going to become an endangered species and what they have to do to fight back to take their... Ryan, you don't think the back. social movement literature has informed discussions? Well, I think it has through a... I think personnel is policy. So I think that there's been a lot of great books written on it and I think one prominent person, Quentin Wittorowitz, yeah. social movement theorist, has gone into government and right. had a lot of influence. Um, but I, I mean, think it was the, exception. the buzzword of 2006. I mean, Al Qaeda. Man, you couldn't hardly talk about it unless you put movement behind it. I yeah, mean, it was well, a big deal. I know, and I know we actually. I'm remembering we went back and forth on this. It bit. was the winning hearts and minds of 2006. Yeah, yeah. I think it sort of had its moment, and it was caricatured, and it never really informed anything. And people talked about it, and people read Quinton's books, and a couple other scholars' books that write about it. But I don't think, like, you still, for example, see this. Uh, you know, we've, we've everyone in this room has sort of looked into countering violent extremism from one perspective or another. It's the sort of big buzzword in D.C. when it comes to terrorism in this administration, at least. And there's still that, yeah. yeah. And there's still that persistent, intuitive statement you get was like poverty. If you want to address terrorism, you have to address poverty, regardless of the fact that study after study has shown this since the '70s that it actually doesn't. And this is one of social movement theory's great discoveries, is looking at grievance, is if grievance is ubiquitous, but collective action is not, what else explains what's going on? But we still, in, this, in our Western society, we look at what's not right and what they're aggrieved about, uh, and try to fix that. And I think that if social movement theories had really informed policy, we wouldn't still be stuck on that track. But a lot of the grievances now aren't social, they're antisocial. I mean, if you look at the phenomenon of, like, 
terrorism in the U.S. It's mostly these one or two off guys, and it's closely so you could closely associate it with active shooters. Yeah, we're dealing with a very fringe. I'll just say, right. I mean, they recently on, it's been that right, but I mean, it's increasingly gone that way. You know, in my opinion, like from 2002 to now, like it, it has gone more in that direction. Um, so I'm not discounting social movement there. I think it has its place. And I understand it from the UK's perspective where the communities are different. You have whole communities that are, you know, mobilized around certain issues. But in the US, like when I looked at the social movement stuff with CBE, the social movement is very lazy and mostly online. You know, like the commitment to action is much lower. Well, and that's one of the There's central problems. on that though. I think it's changing. Uh, in the yeah, direction. sovereign citizens, you could say that. For sure. Well, sovereigns, yeah, although they're not a real cohesive movement in that way, but but more like the patriot type movements are right. really they're doing stuff. I mean, they like what? Like they have uh, they're building a compound in armed compound in town in Idaho. Uh, they Trying to a, buy up land in North Dakota. They have an arms manufacturing company that. That is manufacturing arms. We should do our next them. podcast there. So, <laughs> <laughs> you should get Roast Now podcast. and JM. Yeah, Roast Now does that stuff too, mm-hmm. right? Is 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 Bill looking into that? Oh, he's in the past. He used to do it. You guys all, your, our listeners will remember Bill. He's been probably the most frequent guest that we've had on our podcast series, and uh, he's always drinking Plymouth Gin. That's always his drink. And actually, we're going to go around the room and talk about what we're drinking now, uh, except for Will, who doesn't have a drink in front of him. Uh, JM. You know, whiskey sour, whiskey sour. All right. It had like a, a orange flower in it. Yeah, it's very yeah, pretty. Kind of, uh, <laughs> they purple, do things classy at the Jefferson. Purple maraschino cherry. Glenlivet Scotch, twelve year. Is that what you normally drink? Uh, if someone else is buying it. Yeah. If I'm buying it, it's Bud Light or Pabst Blue Ribbon <laughs> or Budweiser or whatever's on sale. All right. Yeah. I'm drinking a, a hot toddy because I have a cold, and it's literally just tea with a shot of whiskey in it. It's the spot. Delicious apple cider. Yeah, and that's what Will's having an apple cider. What about drones on Twitter? There are drones on Twitter. There's Drunken Predator. There's yeah. Super Drones. Those are the best. Who's the guy that does the ones and zeros and digits? Is that Super Drone? or Super Drone, yeah. yeah. Every time Omar would tweet, he would tweet back with just zeros and ones and dashes. It was one of the funniest things. I don't know who the guy is. This is great. So drones got in the news again recently when we... Uh, when uh, presumably a U.S. drone hit a wedding party in Yemen, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of reignited the debate on on the whole program. Um, do you think it's fair to even call it a drone program? Or would you call it as part of a larger program? It's part of the, it's part of the counterterrorism package. Yeah. Which, that, I mean, that is the option we've descended on. And that's because of the way our public responds to things and because of the challenges we face. I mean, you could trace it all the way through. We we started doing everything under the sun for counterterrorism, and now we've descended onto one, two, or three things that have been more effective and people haven't gotten upset about as fast. So if you look back to 2002, you know, we, we did everything. I mean, we were doing three cups of tea in Herat, you know, for, like, trying to win over hearts and minds. We were trying to do all these other things. We were occupying whole countries. And so you look at how public perception does shape policy, go back. The first thing everybody got worked up about was detention. 
we don't like black sites and we don't like Gitmo. So people freaked out about that. Say, okay, so we stop black sites and we stop Gitmo. What's the next thing we get worked up about? Next thing we get worked up about is we don't like NSA spying on us. This is round two of NSA you know, surveillance. There was another one about 2007. You know, 2007, listening to phone calls or whatever. Okay, we'll take that off the plate. By, you know, right after the surge and then going into Afghanistan was like, hey, we're not going to do occupy and clear hold build and rebuild nations anymore. And we're not going to do democratization. It's too expensive and we're not good at it and we're not successful. So we pulled that off the plate. And the only thing that was really effective uh, you know, against Al-Qaeda in Pakistan was drones. It was the one thing that we could do. We tried, you know, militia groups, the Frontier Corps in Pakistan. We tried the Pakistani military. None of that worked. Has perverse incentives. Gives them incentive to keep terrorists around so that they're getting funded. They lightly go after it or don't have the capability. So we don't like that and we take it off the table. So, you know, you work back around to drones now where we're at. It worked in Pakistan really, really well. And it wasn't until there was public pushback that anyone really addressed it. The eliminating parts of minds campaign. Eliminating. As instead of winning them. But we got there because we took all the other options off our table. So if you can't detain somebody or you can't, have a, you can't drop them off to a foreign partner because they're going to torture them or you can't use, you know, other tactics for rendition, then we fall back to drones. Because when you look at the guys who are executing, they go, well, I can't do any of these things, but... I got to get rid of bin Laden and his support network, so I'm going to go with this. And it was super effective. So the pushback is justified in some cases, even though some of it's mislabeled. Like the 41 people that died in Yemen weren't killed by a drone, they were killed by a cruise missile. Oh, really? Yeah, that, does, some of that all gets sort of lumped in. Any, anything that explodes for any reason now around the world is the result of a drone, whether it's like an aircraft or a cruise missile or whatever. So if you look at the numbers, we backed off of it, but drones are never ever going to be perfect. And so they're not going to go away because the secret, you know, that everybody knows in DC and nobody will say is they're our best option that we got out there. We're only withdrawing from Iraq and Afghanistan right now because we've come up with that drone system where we can actually interdict targets. Al Qaeda is running all over, you know, Africa and the Middle East and there are numbers of one, twos, threes and twenties. And that's the best way to keep an eye on them and interdict them and keep U.S. Tro- troops at home. So it's not going away. And we're still going to make mistakes. They're going to be civilians that get killed. That's my take on it. That's a great way to end a, a, a proper ramp. Civilians. Yeah. Civilians will get killed in all options. But I, here's my hypocrisy with it. No one has looked into how much we indirectly sponsor other things and the deaths, civilian deaths that come from it. So... Who's done a deep dive on the Frontier Corps going into the rural areas of Pakistan? Or when we, you know, back the Pakistani military to go up into the tribal areas and what might come from it. You know, when I was in Kenya in 2007, the first thing they said was, oh, you're part of George Bush's war on Islam. And I was like, what do you mean by that? I was like, oh, you fund the police and the police come down here and, you know, there's all sorts of corruption. They beat us down. They take our money and whatnot. So there's a lot of other casualties that are in these other options, too. I haven't seen anybody do a good examination of that. And you've sort of seen the full scope. Uh, you sort of got into this business, shall we say, as, a, as an FBI agent. I did. Early in your career. For a very short time, yeah. yeah. Then I was a dirtbag contractor yeah. for a whole bunch of agents. You have a good, you've got a good story. What was your most common call when you were working the terrorism beat? Whoever was, was the guy that the CNN put on TV that day. Yeah. So that's like... A new FBI agent's worst nightmare is they go, this person might be in the U.S., 
and every person that's seen a man with a tan and a mustache in the past three days immediately calls in. You drive around town all day going, have you seen this guy? And then the guy comes up to the car and they go, that guy kind of looks like me. I was like, yeah, somebody probably called you in. <laughs> Be like, I'm sorry, if you see this guy, which you won't because he's probably in Pakistan, give me a call. And that was it. You drive away. You might do eight or nine of those a day. Really rewarding. Yeah. That was good. I mean, you get to learn a lot, you know, about how things work. Will, you just uh, assume this position over at Brookings, heading the U.S. Islamic World Relations Program. What are you working on over there? How do you see this? Now that you're looking at terrorism through sort of a wider prism of U.S. relations with the Muslim world, has that changed your perspective at all? Need like six months, maybe, to get this done? Yeah. Eight. We can wrap it up. But, yeah, I mean, I guess my, my interests have always been broader than, than terrorism, but, you know, terrorism was the, the main policy issue for the last decade, but the Arab Spring kind of ushered in an opportunity to work on political Islam writ large, and I've, I've had a long interest in, in Salafis and Salafi politics. Salafis are ultra-conservative Sunnis, um, and typically... They shun both revolution uh, and party politics, but you know, over the past few decades, they've gotten involved in in both. And with the Arab Spring, they've really gotten involved uh, with both terrorism, but also parliamentary politics. So it's it's an opportunity to look at the community through that wider lens um, and see if political participation is going to do anything to lessen the attractiveness of terrorism. It's sort well, of You've seen this interesting in Egypt, but it's been interesting for me to watch at least. love to hear your thoughts on this. You have this big conflict between the military and, or the state and the brotherhood. Uh, but what have the, and the Salafis have been sort of sitting on the sideline waiting to see what happens really? Yeah, it's, it, there, there's a variety of actions. The smaller Salafi parties in Egypt align themselves with the Muslim Brotherhood because they didn't want to, they didn't see any advantage to being aligned with the largest Salafi party, the Nur party. Um, they figured if they got, if the smaller parties, if they got with the Brotherhood, they would be more likely to benefit from state patronage. Um, so when the Brotherhood went down, those smaller parties were furious and are kind of allied with the Brotherhood and condemning the coup. The newer party, being the primary Islamist competitor for the bro with the Brotherhood um, from its inception, um, has always had an ambivalent attitude towards the Brothers. Um, and the Brothers blew a big opportunity to bring the newer party on side when it didn't give them any major appointments in the cabinet. And after that happened, and after Noor had its input on the Constitution, which was its key issue, it decided, oh, we don't need to work with the Brotherhood anymore. And since then, they've been happy to work with the opposition against the Brotherhood, and Noor uh, supported the coup and plans to participate in the, in the next election. And I think it's a, it's a great example of the way in which um, uh, political opportunities um, can cause uh, even the most arch-conservative Islamists to change its, its, their views about politics. Um, and so you've seen that in Egypt. It's been a, a, a remarkable uh, petri dish of, of, uh, of looking at these kind of reactions because the reactions of the Salafi community have just been all over the board. What about the, the party that used to be, that emerged from the former Islamic group in Egypt? 
Yeah. Uh, what have they been up to? Well, they they were one of the small groups that that stuck with uh, the Brotherhood. And this is a group that was very violent in the '90s, mostly. Yeah, and then they and then they put down their weapons. Um, and then when the opportunity arose with the revolution, they established a political party that won a few seats, three I think. Um, but they allied themselves with the with the Brotherhood, and so they were furious when the when the coup happened. Um, but even though they made some noises early on about you know about violence and perhaps returning to violence, it, it doesn't seem that they have. But I, I view them as the uh, as kind of the the bellwether. I'm I'm looking to see how they react in the coming months because I think that will tell you a lot about the prospects for violence among the Salafi community mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the next few years. Mm. Uh, some of you guys have been looking at uh, support networks, financial support networks for the Syrian Jihad uh, and foreign fighters going into Syria. Well, what's been sort of the focus of your, your research there? Yeah, um, so this, is, this has been an interest of mine since Afshan Osivar and I were working on a, a paper uh, for CNA, looking at um, just looking at the rebel, the rebel alliance in Syria, um, and the uh, the way it's kind of formed up, and the manner in which um, hold on, we're we're getting things, getting new drinks. Thanks. Yeah, but one, the big thing that Afshan and I noticed in looking at um, the rebels and the way that they failed come together is the influence of foreign money uh, that was coming in, particularly from the Gulf. There are a lot of wealthy citizens living in the Gulf. A number of them are Syrian expats, um, but also uh, uh, locals, um, particularly in Kuwait. And I, I noticed uh, some of the larger Salafi groups in Syria uh, being funded by, very publicly funded by individuals in the Gulf, particularly in Kuwait. Um, and it was quite striking how upfront their fundraising was, both among the militant groups in Syria making public funding appeals on Facebook and Twitter, and then private citizens in the Gulf responding with money and, and, and fundraising appeals. Um, I don't think we've ever had an opportunity to really, you know, ha to see it happening on such a large scale in, in real time. Um, and uh, according to our own U.S. intelligence community and independent uh, research carried out by Elizabeth Dickerson, Dickinson, who wrote a paper for us at Brookings on the subject, they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and, and sent it to Syria. So it's a huge influx of cash. And a lot of the cash is going to some of the worst groups, the most sectarian groups, the ones that are going to keep the conflict alive for a long time, that are going to push for the establishment of a very conservative Islamic state. But often the least Syrian groups. The least Syrian groups. Um, and uh, um, it has really promoted factionalism uh, among the rebels. Um, and. Usually when we talk about the influence of Gulf actors on these conflicts, we're always talking about states. But the states have a very different game. And ironically, um, the states are the one whose activity is most opaque. We know less about what the states are doing than what these private funders are doing. And the private funders are just very upfront 
because it's their way of, of raising money. And beyond the Syrian conflict, these techniques that they have developed for raising money and for moving that money, those techniques aren't going to go away, right? When the next conflict comes, they've got their skills honed and they're just going to turn it on those conflicts. And those countries where this money's coming from, like Kuwait or Bahrain or Saudi Arabia, they've already got their own big sectarian problems at home. And these communities uh, uh, will be stirring the pot back at home. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm worried about the long-term stability uh, in the Gulf because this community has been has been activated. Well, and not just in, in the Gulf. What's interesting about the foreign fighter problem in Syria is it's much bigger than it was in Iraq. But in Iraq, it got much more public attention at the time. I guess because it was a newer phenomenon for us to be seeing foreign fighters against our own, fighting against our own people. But Syrian foreign fighters getting plenty of media. You're getting a lot of media, but I, I mean, I, I just think about Iraq in 2006, 7, 8. I mean, it was just, that was consuming everything, I feel like. Zarqawi was cutting people's heads off, and uh, Zarqawi. Um, but it's a much bigger problem, I think. But particularly for Western, not particularly for the Middle East and the Gulf, but also for a lot more Western Muslims from Europe coming in to the conflict than I think we're going into Iraq. Well, we just don't have as many journalists as, as we used to have in, in Iraq. That's another thing. Yeah. The other thing is the assumption that every time there's a foreign fighter, the next step is they're going to be wanting to blow themselves up in the West, too. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know that that is necessarily the case. I mean, there were tens of thousands of you know foreign fighters that went to Afghanistan not all of them came back and wanted to do a suicide mission, you know, in the U.S. or any Western country. But it increases the odds. Oh, yeah. Right? The but more the numbers, does. the more the chances yeah. of... But we should look at other options that we have, especially from the Western countries, about we can reshape some of that. So, like, they were always against the West for what reasons? One, they said we've cropped up apostate regimes. They can't really say that. We haven't done that post-Arab Spring. There's a few places you where we... can say in Egypt that we propped... I mean, the narrative is... Uh, they can come narrative. up with whatever narrative they want, but we've mostly been inactive in a lot of these things. We just yeah. kind of haven't done anything, just waiting out to see what happens. You know, the other thing is, you know, that we're occupying Muslim lands. We're not really doing that now. Well, and if you look at who's propping up the oppressors of the foreign fighters, it's Iran and Russia a lot right now. That's who's backing the Assad regime. Yeah. Is that a topic I shouldn't talk about? No, no, call no, it no. To cut, cut me off. <laughs> but do, do you think that shifts the focus of the jihad, the Sunni jihad? Well, why, does, why doesn't it? So my point is, you know, from our strategic interest, the assumption is, and I think it's probably right, they'll be in ISIS, they'll get all riled up, and as soon as that conflict's over, they're going to want to blow up Westerners. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it, they're fighting Kurds and they're fighting Shia. There's a lot of sectarian issues. So why wouldn't they want to go blow up Iranians somewhere? Or why wouldn't they want to go fight the Russians who they fought, you know, during the yeah. first? I mean, I think there's different ways to look at this. And the U.S. could shape that. I mean, they could shape that sort of influence based on the strategic decisions they make. We're not, the immediate assumption is as soon as the war ends, there's going to be 30,000 dudes with suicide vests who march their way to New York City, you know, blow us up. There's going to be some. I don't doubt that. But I take your point, but... A lot of, I mean, the worries about the Westerners, right? It's it's not mm -hmm. about the Arabs that are fighting there. Or the it's Europeans. Is what it's, we the, say. It's, the, it's the Europeans that are fighting. And there's, there's more Americans that went to Shabab and, than I've seen. Right, and those Syria. Europeans, chances yeah. are, they're not going to be heading off for Russia. They're going to be heading back home, and that's the worry. How many do you think? They're more visible. I mean, the numbers that I'm getting. How many Americans do you think are in Syria? 
Possibly as many as 60. Okay, how many do you think went to Somalia? About 50. I bet there's a few more than that. I mean, see the numbers are on par. I mean, yeah. but for the gross volume of foreign fighters going to Syria, you know, what are they saying, 10,000 now? I mean, yeah, oh, yeah, you know. I, I mean, Americans are a trickle of, of that pile, you know, of foreign fighters. Well, I, I'm sure somebody's going to listen to this and go, you're underplaying the threat of Al Qaeda, you know, you're. You're hurting our country, but the, I mean, let's realistically look at what other options we have in terms of policy we're dealing with these guys. Will Someone's going to come blow themselves up. Will and I were talking about. I, I posed this question earlier uh, today. Is it's a two-pronged question? Is the first one is, do should we be treating foreign fighters as an extension of terrorism problem? Is it violent extremism? Or Aaron Weisberg wrote, you know, not not too long ago, it's like, it's not extreme to want to go fight in Syria. Right. It doesn't make you an extremist. A so, lot of them are there for sectarian reasons. So, or or just because they're responding to an atrocity that they see happening and they want to do something. Well, you could argue that they're doing the same thing in Iraq and the same thing in Bosnia and the same thing. I mean, so does that mean that Bosnia, yeah, uh, Iraq is a little more ambig ambiguous, I think. But, I guess the, there's, I mean, I, I had a two-pronged question earlier and, and we didn't Settle it, uh, nor are we likely to tonight. But the first one is: should we should we be treating the foreign fighter problem as a extension of violent extremism? Because right now, at least within this country, as far as American citizens, we do. And then the second question I had, which kind of goes to some of the stuff we we're just talking about with the Salafi politics, is: would you rather have a stronger jihadist movement that is more traditionally political, is more of a rational actor? Or would you rather have a weaker movement that is irrational and more destructive like Al-Qaeda is in its current iteration? I have another question to add to that. When will jihadis figure out that if they don't directly mess with the U.S., that the U.S. will mostly leave them alone? Which is what's going on in Syria right now. Which is what happened with the Taliban yeah. you know, many, many years ago. Generally, we will ignore them unless they're, we're really agitated. Well, there now, is this big shift back to the near enemy away. Right, from right, the right. So what if someone gets on that string, you know, in the Syrian rebellion and says, you know what, yeah, we'll save death to America, but the truth is we're going to carve out our own space here. We're going to do our own little thing, and we'll get to it later, which is always like, I don't want to get hit with a drone. <laughs> I don't want to bring, you know, U.S. force onto me. When I talk I'm waiting for one of those guys to, I, maybe it's already happened, I just don't know because I can't watch it, but... When I talk to them online, it's I have that conversation with them uh, frequently. Is they'll be like, you know, why are you trying to stop us from fighting in Syria? And I'd say, like, look, if you guys weren't, if, if this wasn't overlapping with terrorism and terrorist attacks on our country, I don't think we would do one damn thing about. We haven't done anything really, have yeah, we? Yeah, really. I mean, we haven't done anything. I we talked about you know sending night vision goggles and a few yeah. batteries over there, but other than that, I mean, we had light influence on the conflict. We do a lot of meetings in Geneva and stuff like that. But Those go pretty well out here. They're fun, man. They're not as much fun as here. But, but I mean, do we want to separate? Do we? Is it in our interest, American interest, to separate Al-Qaeda from these other movements and to treat them differently? No and way, to man. To treat foreign fighters differently from Al-Qaeda? Dude, National Geographic specials go much better if we just keep it very clean and just call it Al-Qaeda, all right? Just well, I, I think that's always been a problem with how we talk about it. Is it's Al-Qaeda has always just been one one organization in a larger movement. I hate to get back to this stuff. And for a while, they were obviously the most powerful and visible. 
within that movement. But I don't still think that's the case anymore. I don't think Al Qaeda Central occupies that role anymore. Can we talk about the definition of terrorism too? <laughs> <laughs> but well, uh, got a good crowd. For I that. think we we got to start talking about the jihadi movement, the different groups within that, the Ansar, the different Ansar al Sharias, and all these different groups that are not Al Qaeda. And they might overlap sometimes, but they're a different problem set. They're a broader problem set, and probably less dangerous problem set for the homeland. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the issue is that our a lot of our public discourse and to some extent our policy discussions conflate, are, are inclined to conflate those things. And I think that there are opportunities that in, in what's happening now that we could be doing things that would help drive wedges between some of these factions and maybe for that to be a strategy change for us, we have to decide what we can live with. Can we live with an al-Nusra? Can we live with an Arar al-Shan? We've been, we've been talking about soft power options for all these years. Today there are more opportunities to actually do soft power options than at any time since 9-11. We could do them across many different nations give, give and me, countries. Give me three examples. AQIM in the Sahel, dealing with Libya, Syria, what Shabbat are the soft power options? We can, instead of going military, let's just take military off the table. Information, we'll use the dime model. Information, we could be doing propaganda information, distributing things in a whole bunch of different ways that we've never done before in a lot of different theaters. And we're, we're just lightly touching on it. There are people in government that are doing it. And they're very smart, but it's a very low focus. The other one is the economic part and the financial part. That would be the number one thing I would focus on right now with these jihadi groups. We don't have a lot of control over them, but we do have some relationships with the states. We can't shut off all the flow, but we can manipulate it in a way that suits our interests. I totally well, believe I think Treasury has been, been one of the more effective. Yeah, but it's only against, like, I'm talking about we've got six or seven jihadi groups in Syria. Who do we want to be the weakest? And how do we do that? Well, we could also be paying off some groups to fight others. Maybe we already are, but... Well, I'm, I'm just saying day, I'd be given back those, the money to the Kurdish military to kill Al Those shaping options that we trumpeted. Remember when the Obama administration came in and Secretary Clinton came in? It was like we're going to be soft power. That was the 2009 or 10 buzzword, right? Smart power was the smart buzzword. Smart power, which right? Was, which is very condescending. We're going to be nimble. Thought. And so, how smart are we being? Like, we've got opportunities right now. We've got two Al Qaeda groups in Syria fighting each other. We've got factions in Shabab. We've got AQIM, which publicly has splits that's come from those AP. Here's, here's our policy in the Middle East. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's let's slow down. And it stops right there. And that's, I feel like, our Middle East policy. Well, that's that's the, our policy towards That was the thing we were talking about on Twitter this yeah. week. I always hear African solutions to African problems, but I never hear Middle East solutions <laughs> to Middle East problems. We always get all worked up as soon as that comes in. And, Oh, the only way we can deal with this problem is if we solve the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And I'm like, that's a good reason to take a bunch of trips to Geneva for no good reason. It's a total waste of time. We get, well, and Secretary Kerry's gotten a guys. lot of uh, criticism for that, focusing mostly on the Middle East, when how much can he actually hope what, to accomplish that? But our interests, what are our interests there in the Middle East, compared to even 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Keeping energy flowing. Most of the energy we're pulling in the U.S. right now is... Not well, coming from yeah, the most of most of our most of our petroleum comes from Canada, Mexico, and Venezuela. Right. But it still affects the the price when it can't get out of the Middle East. Right. So but, we still have an. Interest. But we could take policy positions, green energy in the states, the way Brazil has done. 
we could take positions on, you know, we're going to self-sustain using oil and drilling. Well, we, the shale, gas, shale, oil revolution What's is that? actually going to... I don't hate America, but I'm saying we're talking about the Middle East as being the center. I think that's a lot of path dependence. Like, we've been so fixated for so many years on the Middle East. Meanwhile, China is just laughing because they've just paved a bunch of roads to extraction industries across all Africa and Latin America. I'm, I'm sympathetic to your viewpoint, but I'm, I'm also worried about... Will's what, looking at Clint right now. He's not sympathetic to anything. No, no he's <laughs> extremely angry. <laughs> Worked up. What you can't see is his hand gestures. It's all, all that apple cider. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it, but... but uh, I, I also worry what happens when we take our hand off the steering wheel. Yeah, like, yeah. Who, who I, grabs the steering wheel? I, I feel like this is Russia like, and Iran, right? Well, and it's also China who has a big interest in making sure the oil flows out of the Gulf. But it also means China controls that choke point if if we allow them. Well, in, in Syria, if we we have taken our hands off the off the wheel, we've decided to cut a deal uh, with with Russia and Assad and tacitly the Iranians. But who's stepping in to fill the breach? Are they the guys we want there? Do we want Saudi kind of setting the tone? Would it be better if we had our hands on the wheel? Because I don't think we've done a very good job. It would absolutely so be better if we had our... We have never at any point in the Syrian conflicts had our hands on the wheel. Not I, at any I point. I we and, should pick our and this is And this is why we have, have come to such a bad state. In I, I think it's interesting to see how this fits in with the potential... Iranian nuclear deal, and I call it potential still because all we have right now is a six-month sort of handshake agreement. But while they refine uranium, Syria for the Iranian regime is is in many ways an existential threat. I like I think that's how they view it. It's their pipeline to Hezbollah, their closest proxy and ally. It's a neighboring country that there was really was their only state ally in the region, and uh, I think that by Negotiating over nuclear weapons, they're getting a lot of space. We're we're less reluctant to screw with them with what they're doing in in Syria. I think that definitely enters into our calculation. Yeah, yeah. is we've decided the nuclear issue is a more core issue for us than Syria, which might actually be the case. And so we're not get. That's one of many reasons that we're not. There's no appetite in this administration to get more involved in Syria. Yeah, but there were things we could have done in Syria to shape that conflict in a way that's not going to be so disastrous for our long-term interests. Such I mean, as had, had we been serious early on yeah. about building the FSA, I mean, really serious about providing heavy arms, providing regular ammunition, we could have shaped the composition of that conflict. Yeah. It doesn't mean you buy eternal friends. But it does mean you provide a centralized source for equipment that pulls in all these disparate brigades and gives them a different flavor because what happened is that tap was not there. The money was flowing in from the Gulf, both from states and from private donors. And it's no accident at all that the Islamist groups have come to the fore. Well, of course not. Yeah, a couple of years ago I was pushing hard on that, that we should get in there. But that was all the results of Libya and, and later Benghazi. No, I, but I, I mean, that why we didn't get involved, there was an election that was coming up, and Libya was like, oh my God, we, we toppled Gaddafi, and it's kind of a mess going on there. And both political parties were sort of anxious about what to do and what their stance should be in Syria. And then the time passed. Well, the and great, in that period, that's when the Gulf picked up. And then to, in the 2012 election, there was no pol foreign policy debate, barely any, because no side had, every both sides were too apprehensive to have that debate. No one wanted to talk about Afghanistan, no one wanted to talk about the Middle East. Um... But I think, I actually take the opposite view from you, Will, in that I think that uh, the administration signaled just enough to make the problem worse. 
and then didn't do any, and what they, and did just enough to make the conflict worse, but didn't do enough to make in their involvement decisive. So you have Obama, President Obama, take the stage and say Assad's downfall is inevitable. Say essentially stating as a matter of U.S. policy that this guy needs to go, which makes our Gulf allies even more comfortable letting their wealthier citizens fund these groups. Mm -hmm. And I really think that contributed to the sort of flow, increasing the flow at least. Turkey was more comfortable playing loose with uh, the jihadi facilitation routes that are still going into, in through Turkey. Uh, and then when we finally have this conversation about arming the rebels, we agree to give them small arms, like years later. Uh, no, small arms will never, ever be decisive in a conflict. They will only just make more people die from gunshot wounds. It's not going to change the way the front lines look in any meaningful way. No, 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 but I, I look. But he heavy arms would. But do you want to give these groups heavy arms? I, you know, I no, think that I, I also we're in this think, just look, terrible situation. Look, I, I'm not like Captain Watts. I never served in the Army. But if you had even provided regular ammunition and regular pay, you would have done gone a long way towards determining what brigades are going to come to your side early on. Early on, yeah. come to your side. You would have consolidated the authority of leadership. That, that, too. This is yeah. this is my point. It's not just about giving them effective weapons to topple regime. It's about creating a dependency, and we were unwilling to do it. Well, how did that work out for us in Afghanistan in the eighties? And I'm not saying that in a dickish way. I mean, I'm asking poorly because we would it have been worse if we hadn't been involved. Would it, you know? I mean, is is that a case study for look? We, I, I think that, I, I we had an opportunity in this conflict pretty early. Yeah. We had a more secular flavor to shape it in a way that would have been more beneficial to our long-term interests. By the time we got involved in Pakistan. The flavor of that conflict in the 80s was already decidedly Islamist, and we were picking among the seven dwarves. I don't think we had the opportunity we had in this conflict. Yeah, and we also had in Afghanistan no direct channels, very few direct channels, I should say, to the Mujahideen, because the Pakistanis guarded them pretty jealously. The CIA did have great direct And we wanted to keep our hand out of it a lot, too. Yeah. I mean, that was the Soviet we're, era, and we were trying we're, to act like we weren't involved. I guess, uh, yeah. But now, even this conflict, when we've given aid, sorry, the, the Turkey won't even let us, like, directly give aid to refugees in Syria. They won't let us advertise the fact. They wouldn't let a government official go visit these Syrian refugee camps in Turkey. How would they let us play a front role in giving weapons to create that dependency? But all, with all these issues, I mean, what is our interest in Syria at this point? I mean, what's the U.S., from a U.S. perspective? What's where, our where real, we are now, or in the Middle East in general? I mean, what is our, what do we want our outcome to be? What I, do, uh, no, I'm asking. I don't know. Well, I, I think one of the the we want number. First of all, we want stability in the region because when there's instability, it creates headaches all over the world. The more refugees that flow out of Syria, the more of a headache you're going to have in terms of regional instability. The more foreign flighter, fighters that flow in and out of Syria is going to be a massive CT headache. Like I, I don't think we have taken the steps we have to take to make sure to mitigate the knock-on consequences of this conflict. Damn. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm defeated by the complexity of the problem because I have trouble. Imagining that there's a, a sort of good path for us to, to really shape a predictable outcome here. 
And I think there's some benefit in our not being heavy-handed in, in Syria, even to the extent, even, even in a soft power way, because as Clint was saying earlier, a lot of this narrative, the narrative that drives terrorism and al-Qaeda growth has to do with us playing a dominant role in intervening in, in Muslim affairs. And I, I take, I your, I take a, your point, but I think this conflict is going to be for the non-interventionists what Iraq was for the interventionists. It is going to be the card that everybody else plays and says, see what happens when you don't intervene. Right. And the non-interventionists can say, wow, you can't talk about a counterfactual, but, but that's what it's going to be because the consequences are going to be so bad from us not intervening in this conflict. Alright, well let's, um, let's end with, uh, we got two people in the room, Clinton Jam, who actually don't live in D.C. They just come into D.C. to do business. And I just Which love is the to best see, way to do DC, the by the way. And I just love to hear your assessments of this sort of crazy town of ours as, out, as outsiders. Um, it's where good ideas come to die. Okay. It's the city of vultures. Once there's a good idea, then I'm going to attach myself to it, and then when it sucks, I'm going to abandon it. Um, what else would I say about DC? Um, at least the transit system works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, those are my three big things. I mean, DC's great. It's fun and it's youthful, and there's a lot of people that are here with like great ideas. But it's interesting how how things and issues sort of morph, and that's why you get the buzzword of the year every year. You know, hearts and minds, smoke them out. You know, whatever it is, is like rise and fall, rise and fall. Somebody should do that on like Buzzfeed or something, right? Top ten buzzwords <laughs> of the GWAT or something like year by year. Yeah, you could probably Drake's. use it with all that dickhead Edward Snowden's PowerPoint slide. <laughs> you know, like we didn't even get to him. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good thing. I'd say something I regret, but yeah, I'll stop. I'll let I'll let Jam talk because he he's from a different town than me. Uh, let's see. So my perception of DC is I was here last week, and with zero snow on the ground, I had four people cancel meetings on me. And <laughs> <laughs> And I shoveled eight inches of snow out of the driveway at eleven o'clock last night, so I could get on a plane at seven a.m. to come here. So that's right. Yeah. I was one of those. This is you know always see one of those that cancel on JM. Yeah, I'm snow day, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know why they called that snow day is because a few years ago there was that nightmare. Where oh, totally. There was oh, that yeah. storm. People got so stuck all in the there. DC residents were sympathetic when they called yeah. it because we were like, it was that a nightmare. Snow, that snowstorm for DC was the nine eleven of bureaucracies, right? <laughs> they were like, oh my god, if this ever happens again, we got to stop all work. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, that was a lot of fun, and I uh, hope you can all do it again sometime. Thanks. Thank you.